Welcome to the Rooted and Reaching podcast, a ministry of First Baptist Church in Charlottetown, PEI, Canada. At First Baptist Church, our vision is to be people deeply rooted in the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ, who then reach out into our neighborhood, city, and the world as we live and share the good news. Here is this week's Rooted and Reaching message from FBC Charlottetown. So this is week two. This is week two in this preaching series called True Faith, Real Doubt. Now, as a reminder, if you haven't been here uh, for the first week, uh, that this series is all built around questions submitted from within the congregation through the month of December. As with uh, last week's message, I've actually combined two separate submissions because I felt they were rooted in similar places. So today we're going to talk specifically about how in our present world, in our present time, we can respond to opposing views to our Christian beliefs. These come not surprisingly from outside the Christian community, but they come from within too. So more pointedly, the, uh, the, more pointedly those who submitted these true faith, real doubt challenges are concerned in all of that with what that does to our Christian witness. How does the witness of the church outside, how does the witness of the church inside get damaged in that disagreement process? It's a very, very good set of questions. But it seemed to me uh, good to, before we go too far, to just be clear what we're talking about here, how to appropriately identify what in our faith we feel might be being opposed It comes down to trying to figure out, determining whether what actually is being criticized, if it's being criticized, if it's being possibly belittled, or if it's somehow being attacked, if that's true. Well, to use a battlefield phrase, is it really a hill worth dying on? It's an unshakable fact that there are, without question, in the course of following Jesus, foundational, doctrinal matters that we can't compromise So, yeah, in that way, there are theological hills worth dying on. But there are also many, many elements of our practice of faith which still cause rifts and still cause divides within the body, but they aren't hills worth dying on. Which means that it takes a spirit-led wisdom and humility to remember which matters are indeed foundational in Orthodox Christianity and which ones aren't foundational. Therefore, not worth dividing over or falling out of fellowship with others over. Now, some of you will have heard what I'm about to describe before, but I always find it useful to go back to when I'm trying to set the context for answering questions like today's submitted concern. Because I I submit... That in the Christian faith, everything falls within three rings, three hoops. Essentials, distinctives, and preferences. Essentials, distinctives, and preferences. Let's start with the essentials. Essential Christian matters... Essential Christian beliefs are those that we can trace as having been fundamental for the Christian faith for 2,000 plus years. These are doctrinal elements that we find enshrined in the earliest Christian creeds. And these convictions are all squarely centered on the conviction that Jesus is Lord. Right? That's, That's what it's all built on. Jesus came into the world. 
And those who realized their need for God's forgiveness would be saved through him. He was born of a virgin. He died on a cross to ensure salvation. He was buried and then three days later rose again. And he's coming again at a time of the Father's choosing to judge both those who claim the truth of the gospel and those who do not. And and, and what makes those things I've just mentioned, and there are others within the creeds that I could have mentioned, is that they're non-negotiable. The non-negotiable nature of what I just mentioned means that if you take away any one of those things, if you take away any of the things that I just cited, you're taking away the very essence of the good news itself. If Jesus isn't my Lord, if Jesus isn't the Son of God, then nothing else I can tell you matters. Nothing else in my life matters. If Jesus didn't, in fact, die on the cross, then nothing else matters in the Christian identity just crumbles. The core essentials of Christian doctrine, which the church was founded on, has always been convinced of and has never wavered from. We can find these encapsulated uh, in the New Testament Greek word kerugma. Kerugma. It means proclamation. In Christian theology, the kerugma of the gospel incorporates the most vital message to be proclaimed in order for the gospel to be the gospel, in order for it to be actual good news. And the kerugma essentials are spelled out for us in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8, and I'm reading from the New International Version. The Apostle Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. See, there's Paul just saying, This is the kerygma. This is the proclamation. This is the message. And notice what he uh, lists as being the critical parts. Notice what he says comes ahead of anything else. What Christianity rests on. What eternal salvation hinges on. What Paul is listing for the Corinthian believers, he calls of first importance. Of first importance. In other words, these are essential. These are essential fulfillments of what the scriptures said needed to happen. But the moment you say that something is of first importance, that implies that there are things of secondary importance. Tertiary, third place importance. Things that are not salvation issues, that are not essentials to the faith. 
So let's take that thought and move from the essential ring, the first one, to our second ring, the distinctive beliefs ring. Examples of distinctive beliefs within Christianity are, and perfect for this morning, baptism. The definition of baptism, the nature of baptism, the method of baptism, which sets one faith tradition apart from other Christian traditions or branches of Christianity. It's a distinctive. Frequency of the Lord's Supper, another distinctive. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. But he never said, and do it this often. So, is once a month appropriate? That's true in our church. Other traditions observe once a week. Other traditions once a quarter. Even the elements of communion themselves, you know, are a distinctive. Is it wine or is it juice? Is it flatbread or Wonder Bread? What makes these examples uh, distinctives is that all of these, again, and there are others, they're agree-to-disagree items, agree-to-disagree matters. They have no bearing on salvation or eternity, and so they shouldn't ever be allowed to cause a rift between brothers and sisters in the faith. Now, I understand baptism differently than, say, a Presbyterian minister does. That shouldn't be a surprise, based on what we've seen this morning. And yet, if the two of us agree that there is, of course, no saving power in the water, and that it's only Jesus who saves, we're remaining in agreement on the essentials, while identifying respected distinctives. More than that, we're remaining in Christian fellowship. And the worst thing that I could do in that moment, in that example, the worst thing that I could do when it comes to preserving or strengthening uh, Christian fellowship, godly witness, unity under Christ, is to take any of those secondary matters and elevate them to becoming of first importance to me. Turning something distinctive into an essential. Treating an essential of the faith as anything less than essential, that is perilous. Theologically perilous to the Christ follower. The essentials are the essentials. But uplifting a secondary issue and treating it like it's an essential, perhaps even removing, someone, uh, removing oneself from Christian fellowship with someone who thinks differently with you on that distinctive difference, well, that is not actually reminiscent of anything Jesus would have done. That's not anything that he taught. And we do a great disservice to the gospel when we articulate, when we choose to live out our faith in ways that Jesus did not. But there's still that third ring. That's the third ring where all of our preferences go in the course of practicing our faith. Everything in the preference ring is everything else in the Christian faith that's not in the first two rings. Everything. From carpet color to genre of music to the use of technology to the manner of dress to pews versus chairs to drums or no drums, Ronnie. Uh-huh. 
or whatever I like. It's a preference, isn't it? Exactly. You like this kind of music, I like that kind of music. Cool. Which one of us is right? It's probably not me. (laughs) The very fact that these are all subjective preferences that I just listed means that neither of us are objectively right, but neither of us are objectively wrong either. We've simply chosen different methods of worshiping the same risen Lord. And nothing, nothing that falls squarely into the preferences ring is ever worth the loss of fellowship or community. Nothing. When it does happen, though, it's usually, as I warned earlier, because someone has elevated a preference to become a distinctive or worse, to become an essential. And when that happens... And it normally happens out of pride, a lack of humility, but sometimes just out of a lack of understanding or maybe even fear. The gospel in all of its beauty, the karugama with all of its clarity, morphs into this ugly thing. This heretically ugly thing that for this morning I'll call Jesus plus. Salvation, if it's presented if not in word, certainly in practice, is only available through Jesus plus the pipe organ needs to be playing the recessional after for it to be legit. Jesus plus. Jesus plus preaching from only men. Jesus plus anything else. Any other preferential condition is the very opposite of the all-sufficiency of the gospel of Jesus. That's why it is so imperative for believers to keep these three rings straight. Keep them straight. So when you're being criticized, when you're being questioned, when you're being condemned, you can decide how much energy to put into your response. Doesn't matter if it's happening in the marketplace or if it's happening in the foyer. The amount of energy that I'm going to put in to a theological disagreement that is precisely equivalent to whether it is a preference, a distinctive, or an essential. Don't expect me to ever get super excited in a conversation about matters of preference. Have at it. You have your opinion, I have my opinion, and at the end of the day, That's exactly what we have, opinions. I'll get more passionate about the next ring on some of those distinctive matters of the faith, matters like women in leadership, believers' baptism by immersion, for example, but not so passionate that it severs Christian fellowship in the process. My faith is not so fragile that it can't handle some respected disagreement. When it comes to the essentials, though, there is no agree to disagree on whether Jesus is the Son of God. He is. There is no agree to disagree on the resurrection of Jesus. He did. The essentials of Christian doctrine, as held by the church since inception, are not up to us to decide. They're not up for debate. They're not up for my comfort level or my personal conviction or even my familiar tradition. So, 
Let me go back to where we started. How then do we live out our Christian faith unapologetically in the face of opposition from wherever that opposition originates, outside the church or inside the church, in a way that doesn't compromise Christian witness? As ambassadors for Jesus, Christians should always seek to be inspiring, attractive examples of how to boldly and lovingly respond to cultural and social realities that may come into conflict with our established belief system. But is that what the world sees when they look at Christians? Inspiring, attractive examples of the gospel? Is that what a person that you're talking to, who thinks Christianity is a crutch, by the way, for the weak-minded, or the professed Christian who thinks your view of the end times is skewed, is that what they come away with thinking after they've talked to you? I am so inspired toward Jesus as a result of that. Do a deeper dive. Would unbeliever or believer alike scrolling through your social media posts, oh yeah, he went there, would they see ringing examples in your feed of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in the things that you say, in the things that you like, in the things that you share? If I can't say yes to that question, or at least affirm, hey, I'm trying, that's a problem with me. That's not a problem with the person who's criticizing or disagreeing with me. It's not a criticism of Christ. It's a criticism of a professed Christ follower that's doing it badly. But what about those times when, despite my best efforts to be a helpful witness to the gospel, I'm still facing opposition. I'm still facing criticism. Maybe I'm even facing condemnation. But I'm trying. So what do we do with that? Matthew 10, 14 has become a bit of a go-to verse when a Christ follower encounters opposition and is wondering, what do I do? What's my response? Matthew 10, 14 describes in part this occasion where Jesus is sending his 12 disciples out into the world on a gospel mission of their own. And he's giving them instructions. And he's warning them about some things that they're going to encounter and that they're going to face and how they ought to respond to it. Verses 11 to 14 of Matthew 10 have some blatant instructions from Jesus when these ambassadors for Christ are made to feel unwelcome or when the kerugma of the gospel is decidedly rejected. Picking up at verse 11 of Matthew 10. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Kick the dust from your feet. In other words, just move on. You know what? Just leave that person and their divergent worldview to face God's judgment on their own because you're going to face it for yours. Allow them to face it for theirs. When we're facing opposition or condemnation for how we've 
committed to living out our faith in Jesus. He, Jesus doesn't say here, so whatever you do, dig in your heels. He doesn't. He says, actually, use your heels. Go for a walk. Go somewhere else. Put those heels to use and graciously move on. Leave that situation in God's hands. A wise man said to me recently, it's better to be found kind than to be found right. But it's always right to be kind. Face it, church. We can't control how passionately someone else is going to hold their position on a given topic. We can't control whether having interacted with us, the other person ends up changing their mind about Jesus. We have no control over that. We only have control over how we react to that opposition, our emotions in the face of that opposition, and our posture as followers of Christ. And that last one is probably the most important one. When we're engaging in some difficult conversations, we have to remember to think about how we're responding, how we're behaving. We can't control the outcome of the other person, of course. We can influence how that person sees our positions, sees the church, sees Christ. See, it's not just the essential truth of what we say. It's the way we say it. It's how we say it that matters. Isn't it possible? I mean, just, isn't it possible? Isn't it possible that the other person maybe doesn't really oppose what you're saying or living or disagree with my religious position at all? Maybe they're reacting to the way I'm saying it. You can speak a harsh truth. You don't have to speak that truth harshly. It seems for this reason that when I'm discussing theological differences, it's my posture that matters the most. Am I humble? Am I being inquisitive? Am I being teachable? Am I actively listening? Or am I only waiting for my turn to respond? Do we only see opposition as a threat that needs to be evangelized into submission. Let me leave off this morning with some application ideas toward these questions about how we can engage in theologically divisive conversations, disagreements, whether inside the body or outside the body. We would do well to remember that beliefs, whether they are religious beliefs or, in your opinion, irreligious beliefs, They are incredibly personal. They become part of our deepest identity, which means that when we feel them being challenged, when we feel them being shaken, when we feel them being disrespected, an emotional response is likely because we're human. As a person seeks to follow Jesus or is deciding whether or not the Christian faith has validity or relevance to them, there is this weightiness in that conversation about what they believe already that needs to be acknowledged. And beyond that, even if it's not agreed with, should be respected. Second thing, Christianity has over 2,000 years of diverse theological thought and practice. And just because I'm not familiar with a particular theological position or I don't hold to someone else's position or biblical interpretation on secondary and preferential matters 
doesn't mean that their position is incredible or that it's automatically heretical. Christianity has a long history of thoughtful and faithful Christ followers who've landed in different places on different secondary issues. Peter and Paul in the book of Acts are a good example. Paul and Barnabas, another good example. Third thing, total agreement in all things attached to the Christian faith should never be the goal for a believer. Because it's not going to happen. The early church fathers, when they compiled things like the earliest creeds, they knew that there was going to be times when there was different biblical thinking or conviction that brought opposition into human relationships. And they determined in those inevitable times of opposition that grace, grace should and would abound in the areas where we're not seeing eye to eye with one another. Grace. In other words, they said, major on the major things. Not on the minor things. Finally, there's a difference between differing gospel messages and differing methods. Different messages. Messages are different than methods. And if I'm not clear about theological essentials, distinctives, or preferences, what might at first feel like a really wide difference in belief or theology might just be a difference in how that view is being presented how it's being conveyed, how humbly it's being held. My living out the essentials of the Christian faith differently from you doesn't automatically mean I'm living out the essentials of the faith unbiblically. Neither are you. So the submissions for this preaching series, and I've combined two of them again this morning and examined them, these are important concerns for the believer. Important concerns for the unity and health of the church. Uncomfortable conversations about Christian faith, never easy. When it's a conversation that revolves around some of our most deeply held beliefs, well, they get more difficult. But I'm convinced that theological differences in understanding and conviction, whether inside or outside the church, they don't have to be dividing points for us. If we let them, they might actually even be a catalyst for greater wonder, deeper mystery, and increased humility going forward. My hope is, the hope is, that on the other side of that theological disagreement or verbal opposition to my brand of the Christian faith and practice, or yours, that we can still find a way to say, you know what, there are so many faithful ways to follow Jesus? Why don't we discover them together? Why don't we keep discovering them together, church? Because if we can shoot for that outcome, we're going to go a long way in learning how to balance our true faith with inevitable human doubt. Amen. You've been listening to the Rooted and Reaching podcast, a weekly ministry of First Baptist Church in Charlottetown, PEI, Canada. Our theme music is inspired by Ben Sound. For more information or to support the ministries of FBC Charlottetown, please visit our website, myfbc.ca, today. If you found the content of today's podcast encouraging, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and drop us a comment. 
In addition, consider sharing today's Rooted and Reaching podcast with at least one other person this week who might be blessed through it or become better biblically rooted through it. Until next time, thank you for listening.